I wonder how your hope meter is this morning. Would you say it's at the unwavering level? I know that we know that it is a hope that is unwavering. But where is your hope at this morning? Where is your hope at regarding this week, the days ahead? Sin in sanctification and in seeing Christ face to face. I pray and I trust that as we dive into God's word this morning, your hope will increase. It will just be boosted. This is going to be a spiritual Red Bull for us as a congregation this morning. If you have your copy of God's word, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This last week, as the school year ended, my family had the privilege of heading to the happiest place on earth to celebrate. And no, I know that you're thinking that that's probably Chipotle. It wasn't Chipotle, um, although I know why you would think that. Uh, We went to Disneyland. We got to go on a lot of different rides. We had a blast uh, just seeing the, the magic through our kids' eyes. I told them, you get to pick all the rides. I'm not going to force you to go on anything you don't want to go. I will not pressure you into anything. Uh, but inevitably, they picked to go on the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. For those of you who don't know, that ride is just pretty much an elevator drop. It's over 13 stories of just plummeting to the earth. My kids didn't know that. Uh, cool. And so, uh, as I said, I wasn't going to pressure them into doing anything, but I also wasn't going to tell them that they shouldn't do anything. So let's just see how it plays out. So we got on the ride. Um, My kids don't know anything about it. They haven't seen the movie. They're just ready to have a good time. The doors close. It's pitch black. I'm sitting next to Tyler and Ethan And the bottom just falls out from under us and we drop. And instantly, Tyler just says in the cutest little Tyler wimpy voice, I don't think I want to go on this ride. And I said, a little too late for that, buddy. I don't know what happened on the ride. I need to go on it again because I didn't get to see anything. I just leaned over and hugged him and held him as tightly as I could and said, we're going to go. We're going to have fun. It's okay. And we're screaming. We're having a great time. And the whole time I'm thinking, I had read somewhere that there are six drops in this ride. Whoever wrote that is a liar, uh, unless, I I know I'm bad at math, so maybe I counted incorrectly. But I'm counting, I'm going, we got five more, four more, three more. We did it, Ty, you're done. And I thought, I was a little suspicious because I had been on the earlier iteration of that ride called Tower of Terror. And I knew that at one point you go all the way to the top, the doors open up and you see out across Disneyland. And we hadn't done that. And I thought maybe they changed that or maybe I counted incorrectly or maybe the person who posted there's only six drops got it wrong. But I I thought we were finished, but I didn't know. And I told Tyler, we're done. We're okay. You made it. Way to go, buddy. And all of a sudden, we just get blasted to the top. We're sitting there. The doors open. They take a picture of you. You know, you have to ask my wife. She has the picture because her and I are just smiling and beaming. We're having the time of our lives. And Chelsea, Ethan, and Tyler are just, their faces are terrified. Um, And then we plummet all the way down. And at, at the end, Tyler was fine. Nobody cried. We got off the ride. I said, Tyler, did you love it? And he said, not at all. I said, we don't have to go on it again. Totally fine. I told him he was so brave. I was so encouraged by his bravery and his courage. But I I thought about that this week. I thought there are so many times in life that we, like Tyler, in the middle of what we're going through, just say, you know what? I actually don't think I want to do this anymore. I think I'm done. Can I get off the ride? I should never have joined. I should never have started. And I wonder... If you're here this morning and you have felt over the last couple of days, weeks, months, years, in your own battle with sin and temptation, I wonder if you have felt like Tyler, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to give up. I know that there is a future in mind that we're looking forward to, but I just don't want to do this. If you're here this morning and you feel that way, I think for believers, the fight against sin and temptation can become 
so massive in our souls that we just say, I'm done. I don't want this anymore. And I just want to say right off the bat, praise the Lord. There's a day coming when we will no longer fight. Heaven is the place where that fight with sin is done. But in the meantime, how are we supposed to fight? What are we supposed to do? Where is our hope in the midst of the fight against sin and temptation? How are we supposed to manage the thoughts that pop into our minds, the affections that we know are incorrectly pointed to idols and things that maybe even are good things that become God things and therefore become bad things? Well, I believe our text this morning will answer all of those questions and set us up for success in fighting faithfully until we see Jesus face to face. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. I want to read 9 through 13 this morning and then ask God's blessing on our time as we dive into his word. Mark writes, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. These are the words of our gracious, holy, awesome God. Let's ask his blessing on our time as we give careful attention to his voice this morning. God, thank you so much for speaking these words, for preserving these words, for letting us have the privilege of reading them this morning. We ask that you would write their truths on our hearts in such a way that we would be forever changed, that we wouldn't just be affected today, but that we would be affected forever. But that is something that is impossible apart from you doing the work. You need to open our eyes to see. We need to be shown Christ. He's here in this text and we need eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive and to treasure and to love and to cherish him above all things. We need your help. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would graciously open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We ask that you would give us that gracious gift of illumination to understand your word. And we ask that we would fight against sin and temptation because we see our Savior who has fought and overcome and conquered and has been victorious. It is in him that we find our hope, our motivation, our power, and our satisfaction this morning. We pray it all in his name for his glory. Amen. You remember, Mark is writing to prove that Jesus is the true king. He's not the kind of king that we expected him to be. He's not a political ruler. He's not a king that's going to bring some political change, uh, freedom from the oppressive Romans. No, he's coming to bring us freedom from sin and death and hell itself. And so if you're going to ask, uh, how are you going to prove to me, Mark, that Jesus is the true king? The first thing he's going to have to show you is the forerunner, the herald to the king, which we saw a few weeks ago is John the Baptist. You're going to prove Jesus is the king. First question, where's his herald? And we see him in the person and work of John the Baptist. The second question is, okay, where's his coronation? I never heard of him being crowned king. And that's what we looked at last Lord's Day in the baptism. The baptism of Christ is his coronation and after the coronation, we would expect a party, celebration. Jesus is king. But instead of a party, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The first act as coronated king is to fight the devil. Why? Because the king, in order to be the king, has to prove he can be victorious and conquer any foe, any enemy. And if you remember, when we began our study in the Gospel of Mark, I said, I want to just do two things every time we gather together. Stare at Christ and be transformed by him. That's why we're studying this book. We're staring at Christ and we're going to be transformed by him. And I just want to do that this morning. 
There's not really a fancy outline. These are two jam-packed verses that I just want to pull as much out as we can in the time that the Lord has given us this morning. And so I want to stare at Christ and I want to be transformed by him. So under those two headings, maybe we can put some things down of observations as we stare at Jesus. And then we can make some observations about how we can be transformed by what we've seen. So first, let's stare at Christ together. And I want to see five things about Jesus from these two verses as we just stare at Jesus. As we stare at him, let's look at five things regarding his temptation. And then we'll look at the so what. How do those change us today? Number one, Jesus is being intentionally led to this fight. Jesus is being intentionally led to this fight. Verse 12, immediately after the baptism, the Holy Spirit that Jesus received at the baptism, remember this is that theocratic anointing. This is the Holy Spirit being given like the Holy Spirit was given in the Old Testament to David, to Saul, to Samson, to perform some feat, to be guided, to be encouraged, to be helped, to be empowered. And then the Holy Spirit would go to somebody else, not like the Holy Spirit works in the church today. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers forever, never to be taken away. But here, Jesus in the baptism is given the Holy Spirit. And then the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is lead Jesus into the wilderness. This is not an accidental encounter with the devil. The Spirit who descended onto Jesus in gentleness is now thrusting Jesus into the wilderness in power. The baptism and the wilderness are connected. One prepares for the other. To be set apart by baptism means that a wilderness is coming. The spirit who descended now drives. My Bible says the spirit impelled Jesus. Your Bible might say a different word. The word there is the same word that Mark's going to use when he talks about Jesus casting out demons. To be cast out. Ek balo in Greek, ek out balo, throw, to be thrown out. This is a very powerful word. Jesus is thrown into the wilderness. I think if you were to ask most people, how did the wilderness temptations happen? How, did, how was Jesus tempted? I think most people would say Satan was lying in wait for Jesus to show up and then tempt him. It's not what the text says. In fact, it's the other way around. The devil did not arrange this meeting the Holy Spirit finds the devil and says, Jesus, do business with him. In fact, there are many authors who have said, if the devil could have gotten out of this, he probably would have wanted to. He, knowing that he's being thrust into it, he's going to say, okay, I'm going to do my best to get Jesus to fall. But this is spirit-led, an intentional fight Mark does not give us the motivation for that. Mark just says the spirit impelled them to go into the wilderness. That's all Mark says. But Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter four, verse one, it says specifically the spirit did this so that Jesus would be tempted. There is a, a battle, an arena of war that is going to happen. And the devil is going to do all that he can to get Jesus to fall and the Holy Spirit says, Jesus, you need to go there and fight. You need to face temptation. And you must triumph if you are going to be the true king. You must be tested in all ways that the people you are going to save are going to be tested, but you must do it without fault. So here is your test. And it's the first of many. Number two, second observation. Not only is Jesus being intentionally led to this fight, this isn't an accident, but secondly, Jesus is fighting this fight with no more resources than you and I have in our fight. Jesus is fighting with no more resources than you and I have. This is why Mark says he was thrown into the wilderness. He was cast into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness, verse 13, 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was... So he is out in the wilderness. He has no food for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. 
and he's with the wild beasts. Why does it say wild beasts? Why does Mark include that? The other gospel writers don't include that. Why does Mark include with the wild beasts? Because Jesus is with Satan on his home turf. Satan has home field advantage here. Jesus is invading enemy territory. He's with the wild beasts, not the wild beasts are hanging out with Jesus. This is like Daniel was with the lion in the lion's den. The wild beasts are included here to show the desertion of this place. People don't live where wild animals run free. Jesus is alone. He's going to have to handle Satan on his own. No one's there to pray for him, to be with him, to comfort him. He has to demonstrate that he has power to fight Satan by himself with no help. Luke and Matthew tell us that for 40 days, he didn't eat. He fasted the entire 40 days. Reminds us of Moses who fasted for 40 days. Elijah fasted for 40 days. It's almost six weeks of eating nothing. And both Moses and Elijah, they went through that period of 40 days of fasting as a kind of commissioning them for ministry. There's an aspect where that's kind of happening here. There's a commissioning of sorts in ministry. But just the, the conditions are grueling. They're hot. Jesus is tired. He's exhausted. And he's hungry for 40 days not eating. And that is a huge recipe. Hot, exhausted, and hungry. That's a huge recipe for me for complaining. You don't want to hang out with me if those three things are happening in my life in the present. Just get me to someplace cool, feed me, let me take a nap. Jesus is experiencing all three of those things. And if he falters at any point for one second, we would be lost. Luke says that the spirit led him around for 40 days. He's dependent on the Holy Spirit. That's why I say, Jesus is fighting this fight with no added advantage to win. I think often we, we misunderstand the person, the nature of Christ. We, we buy into this kind of Superman syndrome of who Jesus is. That Jesus being 100% God, and he was, and he never stopped being that, nor will he ever stop being that. But often when we think of the incarnation, Jesus took on 100% humanity to himself. So he's 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time. And we often think that because that is the reality of who Jesus is, that he's really just the, the Clark Kent syndrome, the, the Superman syndrome, where you remember Clark Kent, he puts glasses on. Uh, he's really Superman, but once he puts the glasses on, people forget that he's Superman. They look at him and they go, well, you can't be Superman. And then all of a sudden Superman shows up just without the glasses. It's Clark Kent without the glasses. And oh, there's Superman. Then he puts the glasses on. Well, where'd Superman go? But he's, he's Superman the whole time. Right? He can do this and lasers comes out of his eyes, right? Like he is Superman the whole time and he knows it and he uses it to his advantage. I think many people buy into that reality, that sense of Jesus did the same thing. So these temptations, he's walking around with Satan going, mm, tempt me all you want because I can't sin because I'm God. So it's not really any big deal. Jesus never played the God trump card. He never got into a situation in a circumstance, in a temptation where he is pushed to the brink and would have failed as a human, but says, whew, I'm so glad I'm God. You can't make me sin. That never happened. And that's why I say, and I think Mark's trying to prove it to you and to me, Jesus had no extra advantage in his temptations than you and I do. In fact, I believe he had every disadvantage working against him in this text. And that's why he becomes our perfect representative. He has to live perfectly in our place. If he could have played the God trump card to get out of a temptation, you and I can't play that card. And so therefore he would not be our perfect substitute, our perfect representative. That's why he needed the Holy Spirit because he was dependent on the spirit to lead him, to guide him, to help him in temptation, just like you and I are dependent upon the spirit in the moments of our temptation as well. The conditions for this temptation, like I said, it's not that Jesus doesn't have any extra advantage over us. He actually has every disadvantage going for him. These conditions are the perfect anti-Eden. You think about the Garden of Eden. You think about Adam. We sang it earlier. Jesus is the true and better Adam. 
What does that mean? He, he is a representative who's going to bring about salvation, righteousness, just the same way that Adam plunged humanity into sin. But think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in a garden in paradise. Jesus is in the wilderness by himself. Adam and Eve have everything they need in the garden. Full bellies, a lush garden around them. Perfect relationships with one another, with God and with all of the animals around them. The exact opposite is happening here for Jesus. He is going into a battlefield where he is living out with every disadvantage afforded to him. He's living out a perfect scenario for temptation. And if he loses, if he falters in any one moment, one step, one millisecond, then we are lost for all of eternity. And Adam fell at the first sign of temptation in the Garden of Eden. Will Jesus fail? Will he falter? Number one, Jesus is being intentionally led to this fight. He's being intentionally led to this battleground. Number two, he's fighting this battle with no more resources than you and I have. And number three, Jesus is experiencing every kind of temptation that we do. Jesus is experiencing every kind or category of temptation that you and I do. That's why Matthew and Luke are going to give us three of the temptations Jesus felt. I, I guarantee you that there are more than three temptations given to Jesus by the devil while he's there for 40 days. The devil and Jesus are talking, are interacting for 40 days. I guarantee you that there are more than three. So why do the gospel writers just synthesize it down to three? Turn to Matthew chapter four. I wanna show you why. In the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter four, we see an expanded account of the temptations of Jesus. Verse one, Jesus is led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, temptation number one, you guys remember, there's three that are given here. Number one, turn stones into bread. Number two, uh, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and God will catch you. Number three, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Three different temptations. Why are these three included? Why these three? Why not other temptations? And what do these three have to do with your fight against sin, my fight against sin? I love these three temptations. The way that they're recorded for us, the order that they're recorded for us. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, stones into bread. The tempter says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, when we look at the three temptations, if you remember watching Sesame Street as a kid, uh, there was a game that they used to play. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Uh, we can play that game here with these temptations. One of these te temptations seems out of place. One of these temptations just doesn't seem to belong. It, obviously, it's wrong to bow down and worship the devil, right? That's a very moral problem if you ever attempt to do that. That's not a good idea. It's also a bad idea to try and test the Lord, put him to the test by throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, by putting yourself into stupid, foolish, dangerous situations. It's a bad idea. Don't test God. Those are obviously immoral things to do. But what's immoral about turning rocks into bread? Why is that morally wrong? I don't think that it's morally wrong at all. So why is this a temptation? Well, what had Jesus done when he became 100% man, 100% human? At the incarnation, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus gladly took upon himself the limitations of humanity. He took upon himself our limitations. So can you and I, if we're hungry, can we turn to a rock and be turning to Chipotle now? Give me a pizza now. We can't do that. Now, if the Holy Spirit wants to do that through us, he can totally do that if he wants to. It's never happened to me. Don't expect it to. 
I don't think it's ever happened to any of you because I haven't heard about it and I'm sure you would have told me that that happened to you. So if we can't do that, then Jesus can't do that. Now, this is the tricky part. Can he do it? Sure. He's God. He can say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of having these limitations. I'm done. I'm going to take my God powers and use them. He had them at his disposal every second while he was on earth. But he lives inside of our limitations so that he can be 100% us. He can be us. He can live in our place. He can be our substitute. So what is Satan doing? Is this a moral issue? Is it morally wrong to turn rocks into bread? No. What is Satan doing? He's saying, Jesus, I know that you are God. You are the son of God, right? You, since you are the son of God, and literally that's what it is in the Greek. It's not if you are, it's a conditional statement. Since this is true about you, make this happen. I know that you're God. You can do this. And if Jesus had said, yes, I'm hungry. This is it. I'm done he would have ceased being 100% human. He would have stepped outside of that limitation of humanity and he would have ceased being our perfect substitute. For Jesus to say, no, I'm going to wait upon the spirit. And I bet you that Jesus said, spirit, am I allowed to do this? Can I do this? And the father said, no, trust me. The spirit said, no, trust me. And so Jesus waits and he waits and he waits. If he ceases to be 100% human for one millisecond, he ceases to be our perfect substitute and we will die in our sins. That's why that's a temptation. It's not a temptation to give up his rights, to give up his privileges. It's a temptation to say, take them back, Jesus. Take them back to yourself. Stop being humiliated. You are the son of God. Be the king that you claim to be. Remember, this is the anti-Eden and the test is the same. Do you remember Satan in the garden said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? That's what he's saying to Jesus right here. Did God really say that you're his son? He just told you that at the baptism. I heard it. I know that that's what was said. He said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus, if you are my son, I would never let you be this hungry. Are you really the son of God? It's the same question. It's the same temptation. Did God really say? If you were truly the son of God, I think that your father would be feeding you right now. Or maybe your father's not good. And Jesus responds, no, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The second temptation Throw yourself off the pinnacle. Verse five, uh, the devil took him to a holy city, uh, to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. This is the highest corner of the temple where it overlooks uh, the Kidron Valley. So this is a very steep drop. This is a bigger drop than the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. And Jesus is standing there and Satan says, hey, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down because it is written. This is so key. The devil says, okay, fine. You're going to quote scripture to me to answer me. I can quote scripture back to you. I can give you the Bible. He quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12. Hey, if you're one of God's people, God will protect you. So let's put that to the test, Jesus. If God really loves you, if you really are his son, he'll protect you. By the way, just interesting side note, Satan uses the Bible and he uses it incorrectly. It's a terrifying thing that he can use this book and manipulate it, manufacture it in a way that he wants to, to bring about his purposes. And what is Jesus' answer? He responds with scripture, but in essence, he's saying, Satan, I don't need to jump off to prove that God loves me. I know that. I trust that. I know it might not feel like it. I, I know it might not look like it right now. I'm an emaciated man, 40 days of fasting. I'm hungry. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And my father has said, I cannot turn rocks into bread. I know you think that it looks like my father doesn't love me, but I don't need to throw myself off the temple and get him to prove his love for me. I trust it. I trust it. So third temptation, verse eight, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. We don't really know how this happened. This is some maybe different dimensions, spiritual, supernatural realm, all the kingdoms of the world. There's no mountain in the world that would show us that. So this is some, you know, spiritual, supernatural thing happening. 
And Satan says, all these things I will give to you. Fall down and worship me. Now, obviously we know that's a wrong thing to do, right? We don't worship the devil. That's always a bad choice. But why is this a temptation? The temptation here is Satan offering Jesus to win the world without pain. No more weeping over Jerusalem, Jesus. No more crucifixion. No, you don't need to do that. No cross. Just go straight to the crown. He's saying, Jesus, I can give you right now what you're living your entire life to get down the road. I can give it to you right now. By the way, Jesus, uh, this is a very real temptation. A lot of people struggle with the idea that, you know, Jesus owns everything. So this is kind of a strange temptation that Satan is offering to give Jesus something. But it's a very real temptation because Satan does own things. Three times, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul calls Satan the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. John writes that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So absolutely, Satan has authority and he is willing to give that authority to Jesus. He's willing to part with that authority. Why? And this is so key. Because he wants worship. I'm willing to give you control of everything, Jesus, if you just worship me. Piper writes about this temptation, quote, what Satan sees rightly is that the one who is worshiped over all is the one for whom all things exist, regardless of who has the immediate rulership of it. If I worship you for giving me the nations, then I acknowledge that the nations exist for your sake. Letting Jesus have the world rulership would not have been a loss for Satan if Jesus ruled the world for Satan's sake. The ultimate tribute is not to own all things, but to be admired and treasured for ownership. So Satan says, just worship me. And Jesus responds with scripture. Verse 11, the devil leaves him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. But I ask the question, why three temptations? Why these three temptations? Why only three? I think it's because these three temptations give us every category of temptation that there is. You remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we studied it in our small groups. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the world is passing away. Don't love the world. And then John specifically identifies the three things that are in the world that we should not love. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Every single temptation that you will ever face can find its way under the umbrella of one of those three categories. And each of those categories is represented here. Lust of the flesh, bread. Lust of the eyes, kingdoms, boastful pride of life, God will catch you when you fall. That's why I say Jesus is experiencing every kind of temptation that we experience. And this goes all the way back to the garden again. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, you see in the garden, Eve looks at the fruit and it's, it's beautiful to behold. She wants to enjoy its taste and she knows that it will make her wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. The very first temptation has that triad of temptations. John, 1 John 2.15 has that triad. And these three temptations all fall under one of those aspects of that triad. Mark is trying to tell us, Matthew and Luke do the same thing, that Jesus is going into the battlefield with no extra advantage for him to win, actually every disadvantage for him to not win. And then he's going to experience every category of sin that you and I experience. Number four, Jesus fights temptation by trusting in the Father's word. Jesus fights temptation by trusting in the Father's word. What does Jesus do when he's tempted? He quotes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 6.16. He quotes scripture. Here's the temptation given and Jesus responds with, here's God's word. The father has spoken and I listen to him. 
It is my food to do his will. And so even if I don't get physical food, I get spiritual sustenance by obeying him. It is him that I serve. He fights temptation by trusting in the Father's word. But we know that aspect of Jesus quoting Deuteronomy against those three temptations, right? We know that. We've heard that before. And yes, that's a perfect illustration of why we should meditate, memorize scripture. We need it in our hearts. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Absolutely. Amen and amen. But there's another aspect of listening to the Father's word that we often don't remember, that we often don't look at. And that's Jesus. I am, I'm sure of this. With the words that his Father spoke over him at the baptism just weeks earlier, reverberating in his soul, in his heart, in his mind, you are my beloved son. So yes, he trusts the father's words in Deuteronomy, but he also trusts the father's words at the baptism. You're my beloved son. Everything you do makes me happy and I love everything about you. And brothers and sisters, isn't, isn't it true that in the moment of temptation or trial, we tend to question, is God really good? In the moment of trial, we tend to think, you know what, God, if you were good, you would keep me from this. You'd get me out of this. I wouldn't be in pain. In the moment of temptation, we say, you know, God, if you did love me, you would allow me to do this. Or when we struggle, when we fall, when we fail, we say, well, you must not love me now. Look at what I've done. I think throughout the entirety of those 40 days, Jesus is meditating on, regurgitating back in his mind and his heart, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that is going to keep him from sinning. You're my beloved son. I'm going to take care of you. Okay, Father, I would love for you to take care of me now. Just wait. Trust me. Just wait. Trust me. And sure enough, Mark tells us that the angels are sent to minister, to serve Jesus. Probably not on Jesus's timetable, but on the Father's. And Jesus is fine to trust the Father because he knows the Father loves him. The word that Mark uses for serving is most commonly referred to in the New Testament to speak of serving food. So maybe the father is sending food with the angels to feed and nourish Jesus. Exactly what the father did in 1 Kings 19 verses 5 through 7 with Elijah when Elijah fasted for 40 days. Jesus is such an example to us in the way that he conquers sin, the way that he fights against temptation. He trusts in the word but he's so much more than just an example. And this is number five. So we've got four realities so far. Number one, Jesus is being intentionally led to this fight. Number two, Jesus is fighting with no more resources than you and I have. Number three, Jesus is experiencing every single kind of temptation, every category of temptation that we do. Number four, Jesus is fighting temptation by trusting in God's word, by trusting in the Father's word. And that is an example to us. Amen and amen. But... Number five, Jesus is our victoriously obedient Savior. Jesus is our victoriously obedient Savior. Jesus isn't just an example. This is an event. This is Jesus being the second Adam. This is the only other story in the Bible that's similar to the Garden of Eden. And here Jesus passes the test. I don't know if you read uh, through the Bible in a year. Um, I do that. I, I normally start in Genesis. And so every January I'm reading through Genesis 1 and 2. And I always get to Genesis 3. And it's like every single time we know the way that this story ends. We know how it plays out. It's like we've seen this movie before. But every single time it's like I want to yell at Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit. Don't do it because I know what's going to happen if you do it. Say no, don't do it. And here we see Jesus, not in a garden, but in the wilderness. And as we watch him walk through the wilderness, we're pleading with him, don't do it. Don't listen to the devil. But this time, Jesus says, I won't. And I won't because I love you. The gospel that Jesus for us, that he won for us here in the garden or in the, the wilderness. The gospel does not say, be more like Jesus and he'll love you. 
That's why I say, yes, this is an example to us, but this isn't an example where at the end of the sermon we say, okay, here's the application, be more like Jesus. This text should tell you you're not like Jesus. This text should tell you we can't, yes, there's a model for us to follow, but this text isn't saying, so just try harder, be better. This text is saying, you can't be. You can't conquer the devil the way that Jesus did. He's the only one who has victoriously passed every test the devil has thrown at him. Never once faltering, failing, or succumbing to temptation. So the gospel doesn't say, be more like Jesus and then he'll love you. No, the gospel says, look now to the one who has passed every test. And by faith in Jesus, he can be for you what you can never be for yourself. That's the gospel. So yes, let's look at the example of our savior, but look at the event of Jesus being the conquering king who then gives us that conquering power. We see five different aspects of the temptations of Christ as we stare at Jesus. And now we ask, okay, so what? If it's not follow an example, if it's not be like Jesus, and yes, we should do our best in sanctified power to live the way that he's given us the ability to live, But what's the application then if we're looking at this saying he's the example, but he's so much more than that. He is the event of winning the gospel. How are we transformed by this text? How are we transformed by staring at Jesus in the wilderness? Can I just give you three ways that we're transformed? Three ways we're transformed. We've stared at Jesus and seen five beautiful observations about Christ in the wilderness. Now three ways we're transformed. Number one, this text teaches us that we have a savior who understands us. We have a savior who understands us. Turn to Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four, amazing, amazing text of scripture. So often I think in our struggle against sin, even when we share with others, we say, this is my struggle. This is the temptation I'm going through. Sometimes there's that look that people give you that just kind of seems like there's a question mark above their head. Hmm, it's not a struggle for me. Okay. Sometimes we feel like, you know what, if I were to share this, you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand me. You don't, you don't understand what I'm going through. You've never been there. You don't know what it's like. We feel like nobody gets me. Nobody understands Hebrews chapter four says, no, there's one person who will always understand. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, cling to him. That's the so what of this message. That's the so what of the temptations. Cling to the one who overcame. Why? Verse 15, because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That's a triple negative. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. He was tempted, but without sin. He can sympathize with you and me. So what are we supposed to do when we know that he can do that? He can sympathize with us. Therefore, verse 16 Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows, he understands. We have a savior who understands. He's sympathetic. It's a connective word. It's compassion, it's empathy. It's desiring to be with someone and feel their pain with them. He was tempted in every way that we are, every category as we saw but without sin. He was tempted beyond our temptations because we all have given in. As the pressure builds on our temptations, as we start to struggle with giving in, ultimately when we do, the pressure goes back to normal. No more pressure. And then it starts to build again and build again, and then it goes back to normal. Jesus never said yes to temptation, and therefore that pressure never let up. He experienced temptation to a degree that no other human has. So he can say with us, Oh, I know exactly what you're going through. We cannot say that with him. 
Well, I know exactly what you're going through because he faced greater degrees of temptation than we'll ever face. But we have a high priest that we can cling to. We have, our God is not in heaven looking at us saying, why can't you get your acts together? I'm so disappointed with you. I don't get why you're doing that again. Why can't you just hurry up and get better? We have a God in heaven who resonates with us. I love the example. We've talked about it before at church. I'm a musician, so I love the idea of this thing called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance is the idea of, uh, in physics where the, the tuning fork works, where you can, if I were to pluck uh, Jose's guitar string over there, if I were to pluck it, that bottom string is, I think it's tuned to a D right now. If I were to pluck that and the, the, uh, the D would ring out And as it does, if there were another guitar close by feeling the waves and the vibrations of that string ringing, that note being hit, it would also vibrate. It would also ring with that same note. That's what Jesus is for us. Christ's instrument is just like ours in every way. And so when a note of weakness is struck in our instrument, it resonates in his This is what Jesus has for you. He has sympathetic resonance. He resonates with you. He is a human being. He knows your weakness. He knows your frailties. He has walked this path before you and he loves you and he cares for you. Thomas Schreiner says, as a human being, Christ knows the frailties and groanings that beset the human race. He's not a distant and aloof high priest, but is himself intimately acquainted with the human condition. Indeed, he experienced the full range of temptation. The delights and joys offered by sin were no stranger to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it brought pleasure. He understands every temptation we face because he faced something similar. Nevertheless, he never surrendered to sin's power. He shared in our weaknesses and frailty, but he did not, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed the will of his father. I love that. We have a high priest, but we have a high priest who has been tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. We don't need another sympathetic sinner for a high priest. We have plenty of those around us. And sometimes our accountability partners can just be that, just sympathetic. Yes, we stink. We need help. Let's go to God for grace. We need a savior who will lead us to victory, a forerunner paving the way to get us to God. He endured the full force of temptation's power. He has overcome. And so we cling to him. Thomas Goodwin in his amazing book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, said that Jesus is moved primarily by two things in your life, your sorrows and your sins. And he said that Christ is moved when he sees you sin, primarily to pity and not to anger. Why? Because as a non-believer, it's anger and wrath as judge over you. But since, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, since all that judgment has been poured out on Jesus, now no longer is there a judge to look at you with anger and wrath and judgment against you. But now it's a heavenly father who looks at you with pity at the sickness and cancer that still resides in your body and your sin. You know this as a parent. If your child is sick, you don't look at your kid and say, hurry up and get better. Sometimes some of my favorite moments are when my kids have colds and they're just a little bit more, you know, zombie-ish and they just kind of walk up to me and just put their face in my belly and say, dad, can we snuggle? That's my favorite. I'll never say no to that. That's what's happening here. We say, God, I've sinned. He says, come here. We need to know this because Martin Luther said it best. I will only trust in God when I know he loves me and he wants to be kind to me. Brothers and sisters, we have seen that Jesus has perfectly obeyed and then he's going to go to the cross and die in our place. So he lived our lives for us because we could not be perfect. He died in our place, taking our sin, taking our punishment. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering the devil, conquering hell. 
And so he offers us perfection. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you cling to that perfection. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We talked about this last Lord's Day. The father looks at you and says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And we look at that and we say, how is that possible? Because we still sin. And yes, when we still sin, it still grieves the heart of God. But we are positionally before the father in heaven, covered in the righteousness of Christ. So we can never be more holy in heaven positionally than we were when we were first saved. Here on earth, presently in our practice, we're growing in sanctification. But positionally, we will never be more holy in heaven than the very first second we got saved because we were clothed in perfection. That's what we need to cling to. Jesus is our great high priest. He has done what no other high priest could do. He is what no other other high priest can be. He's endured what no other high priest can endure. And he gives what no other high priest can give. So number one, we have a savior who understands. We have a savior we can run to. Number two, we have a savior who empowers us to fight. He has given us the power to fight. Apart from him fighting with success and victory, we would have zero power to successfully fight against sin. But Jesus gives us the power to fight. Dressed in his perfection, we are now given the freedom to fight. This is why every single New Testament epistle, you will always see this uh, outline of indicatives of who we are in Christ and then imperatives of how we live our lives. Colossians chapter three is a great example. Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, since he did all the work to save you, Now live differently. It's not the other way around. It's not three chapters of imperatives with three chapters of indicatives. It's not, you better try hard and then God will love you. The gospel says God's going to do all the work for you. And if you know that, believe that, receive that and cherish that, you will change. You will change. We're saved by faith alone. Amen. But that faith will not remain alone. You will be sanctified. But... You are not saved by your sanctification. You're not saved by how sanctified you are. You're saved by faith. And faith will produce sanctification. So if you don't have any sanctification, you prove that you aren't saved. But if you cling to this person, this man, you cling to Christ who has won perfection for you, obeyed perfectly in your place, and you say, you have done for me what I could never do for myself. I cling to you. I trust in you. If you cling to him, it will change you. Grace will change you. If you're saved by your works, I'll do this, and then God will save me. Then there's a limit to what God can ask of you, right? If you're saved by what you do, it's kind of a contract. I do my part. You have to do your part, and you can't ask any more of me. But if you're saved by grace, it's all of him. This is the scary part. There's no limit to what God can ask of you. He did all the work. He demands everything of you. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. And that can be a very challenging thing. But if you understand the grace of God and the goodness of God, you will realize I want to give him everything. I want to fight. I'm going to work. Not because I'm going to earn your favor, but because you've already given it to me in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this text should motivate us and empower us to fight. We don't sin because we have to. You don't put it in your calendars on your iPhone, right? Okay, got to sin tomorrow. We don't sin because we have to. We sin because we want to. It's what our hearts love. And so even in those categories of sin, Temptation to pleasure, pride, or power. We should look and we should ask, what's my biggest weakness? Where do I struggle the most? Where am I idolizing something? Idols will always kill you. They will never deliver on their promises. They always promise all of this pleasure, deliver none of it, and only give you pain. And Jesus says this morning, I will give you everything. Take up your cross right now. Trust in me and my finished work, and I'll give you everything but you can't have both. You can't have your autonomy. You have to give things up. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. You cannot take all luggage with you. This is his preface to that uh, amazing book, The Great Divorce. You can't take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things that you have to leave behind. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall never see heaven. But if we accept heaven, 
we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. You have to make a choice. But then he says this, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, was precisely nothing. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectations, waiting for him in the high countries. We have a Savior who understands. We have a Savior who empowers us to fight. And finally, number three, and we'll end here. We have a Savior who has conquered for us. We have a Savior who has conquered for us. Remember, this is the gospel. Gospel just means good news, and it was used in a military sense where a herald would come running into a city. A, a war had been taking place, and the battle had been going on, and he comes running into the city saying, I have good news. The battle has been won. We're safe. Did the townspeople do anything to win that battle? Nothing. It was all one for you. And in this text, we see Jesus running onto the battlefield with the devil. And we have the gospel coming to us, the good news coming to us through the Holy Spirit, through the word of God saying, hey, everybody, Jesus won. He won. He is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better Elijah. He's the true and better Israel. He's the true and better everything. He won where Adam failed. And he offers us that victorious conquering power. It's interesting that Mark does not include what Matthew and Luke include, namely that the contents of the temptation end and Satan leaves looking for another opportunity. I think Mark does that purposely because Mark, to Mark, this is not the beginning and end of the temptations. The temptations of Christ will experience, he will experience them all the way to the cross. And he will obey the Father perfectly. He will obey the Father in the wilderness where Israel had lost, where Israel had completely disobeyed and rebelled. He will obey the Father in the wilderness where Adam had disobeyed in the garden. He learned obedience, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, and he's learning it as he goes through the wilderness and through the rest of his life. So brothers and sisters, stare at Jesus. Be transformed by him. Jesus in the wilderness, whereas Adam is in the garden, Jesus wins in the wilderness where Adam failed in the garden. And because of Jesus's victory, he will bring all of us who trust in him back to the garden once again. In the garden, the father said to Adam, obey me about this tree. Don't eat from it or you will die. And the temptation that the devil gives is, don't center your life around God's word. Center around you. It's the exact same thing with Jesus. But this time, as Satan is saying, don't center yourself around God. Center yourself around what you want. The father says to Jesus, obey me about this tree. But it's not of the tree in the garden. It's the tree on Calvary. And it's not if you disobey, you will die. It's if you obey, you will die. Go to that tree and obey me about that tree and you will die. But in his death, the conquering king will conquer not only Satan in the wilderness, not only sin at the cross, not only death from the grave, not only hell and everything that it has to throw at us, but he will win for you and for me a perfect relationship with his father, the one that he loves the most. And he'll say, come be a part of my family and love him with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word. That brings us to a place of being undone in your presence. There is no reason that we should be able to experience this kind of grace. You are our great high priest and you are our friend. When we used to be your enemies, you loved us and died for us. So Father, I pray, yes, we learn from the example of Christ, but more than that, press into the event of the temptations and see we could never be him. That's why we need him. That's why we love him. That's why even the sin that we love, that we still struggle to fight against, this morning and right now, we look at Christ and we say, no, we love you more. Help us to love you more. Help us to hate our sin more. God, thank you that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. 
And I pray right now for all of us that we would cling to him as we sing. We pray in his name. Amen.